You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Before introducing my topic and guest, I need to take a personal moment. This podcast became possible and began because of the encouragement and support of some very special people in my life. One of those was the Reverend Dr. Tommy Bratton. Tommy was the associate pastor of Christian Formation for many years at First Baptist Church, Asheville, North Carolina. Recently, he became coordinating pastor. Tommy was first secretary and then for the past three years was chair of my board. To the churches and to our great shock and grief, on Saturday, July 15, Tommy had a massive heart attack and died. His knowledge of the leading people, events, and books in present-day Christianity and his technological management and leadership skills, generosity of time, and enthusiastic encouragement were immense and were invaluable to the development of this podcast. He will be deeply missed. This episode is dedicated to his memory. Because of the terrible, evil legacy of European and American Christianity's complicity in the treatment of native, indigenous, First Nation peoples here in the United States, it is understandable that there is a wide spectrum of responses among American Indians to Christianity. In this ongoing series, my desire is to enable you to hear and learn from the many voices of First Nation peoples about faith, spirituality, worship, lifestyle, worldview, and, of course, Christianity. In Episode 8, I interviewed Dr. Tinker, who is Osage. He lived his career as a teacher of Christian theology, but in his own journey, he came to see his Osage spirituality as incompatible with Christianity and moved away from Christianity to embrace his Osage heritage. Today, my guest is a close friend, Dr. Tim Ross, who is a member of the Cherokee Nation West, a graduate of Milligan College and Emanuel Christian Seminary. Since 1996, Tim has been pastor of Hopwood Christian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Prior to that, He and his family served with Christian Missionary Fellowship among the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. He is here to share with us his journey and perspectives as a Cherokee, a Christian, and a Christian missionary, pastor, and seminary instructor, and to tell us about the work of the North American Institute of Indigenous Theological Studies, or NATES, as it is now called. Well, welcome, Tim. Thank you so much for being with me, and it's been a long time, and I'm glad to get get that we're getting the opportunity to do this. It's a pleasure to be here with you this evening. Well, let's begin by letting you tell your own spiritual journey, uh, especially uh, as your own Cherokee heritage has interwoven uh, with your faith. Sure. So I'm a follower of Jesus. I have been my whole life long. I was raised by two parents who were both members of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, 
citizens of the Cherokee Nation from uh, Oklahoma. And um, my spiritual journey has always been uh, tied to the person of Jesus Christ, with the person of Jesus being at the very center of it all. I grew up in a little church in the Midwest, in Indiana. Um, my parents, like a lot of, of Southern people, moved north to, uh, to work. And so I grew up outside of the historic Cherokee nations, but um, I, I found a lot of resonance always with my life, my, my identity, and the person of Jesus. Jesus, after all, grew up in a tribal setting. God chose to place him uh, within a, a traditional people in the midst of a community. And I always found great resonance in that. Uh, I always knew that I was Cherokee. I always knew that our family had a rich heritage in uh, in in Cherokee life, and I think that a lot of the things that that uh, Cherokee people and traditional people care about, um, I cared about too. I always felt a closeness to the to the created order. Um, I always felt a kinship with uh, the outdoors, with water and fire and weather and. And uh, it is true that, that there was uh, some brokenness when it comes to the uh, growing up in a, in a traditional Cherokee setting. Um, I did grow up in the Midwest, and that's, of course, outside of the Cherokee Nation. But uh, our home was, um, was a place where a lot of Cherokee values were, were still held. Uh, there was an emphasis on hospitality. Uh, there was an emphasis on uh, simple living, uh, plain speaking. And I think that, um, that one of the real homecomings in my spiritual journey and in my journey as a Cherokee came when I turned 18. I graduated from high school and I came to college in East Tennessee. And when I arrived there, uh, already realizing that this was part of, of uh, the old Cherokee uh, homeland, I found an unaccount un a really a surprising and unlooked for resonance with being in this part of the country. Um, I, I believe that even land holds long memories and long memories of, of people who have uh, who have dwelt there and lived there and made their mark there and buried people there. And uh, I have felt that resonance with this area in East Tennessee. And so it's been a homecoming that's uh, it's been really close to my heart. And we have lived here, not the entire time uh, that I've been an adult, but for a good long portion of it. Uh, we're just a couple hours from the Eastern Band Cherokee Nation, uh, a couple hours drive, and uh, my parents have since moved back to their uh, home farm on the reservation in Oklahoma, where they still live, 
uh, among the Cherokees in in that place. So um, uh, I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm a Cherokee, and um, and I'm a I'm a citizen of uh, of the world. Well, now you you also your your grandparents were out in Oklahoma as well, right? Your... Yeah, that's correct. Both sets of grandparents um, lived in Oklahoma, and um, three of my four grandparents are tribal members. And were. and you have an aunt that's a hundred and three. Yeah. My Aunt Lucille turned 103 this year. She is an amazing Cherokee woman. Um, you know, Cherokee always uh, really valued the um, the influence of strong women. And the women in my family are, are no different. Highly educated, um, really wonderful people. My, um, my aunt uh, worked in Washington just after World War II. Uh, when the Atomic Energy Commission was was brand new, she was there. She knew Oppenheimer. She knew Einstein, and uh, she's still just as sharp as a tack. And uh, was just honored by the nation when she uh, when she turned one hundred and three. Uh, that's worth honoring. <laughs> well, that's just wonderful. Um, talk with us a little bit about uh, your own personal preference of language. Um, some uh, prefer Native American, others prefer American Indian. Uh, some just refer only to their tribal uh, image and, and identity. Uh, some prefer indigenous uh, peoples or First Nation. Um, how about you on this? Well, for me, I guess I preferred simply to be known as a Cherokee man. Um, uh, among all those other designations, I guess I prefer uh, First Nations. Uh, that's it's oftentimes used in Canada. You hear it uh, commonly refer to Indigenous people, Native people. Um, I guess as a Native person or an Indigenous person would be uh, also my preference. But I call myself a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Okay. Well. There is a, a tension uh, among tribes uh, as to uh, who is recognized. Uh, some are recognized like the Cherokee uh, by the United States uh, government. Uh, others like uh, in North Carolina, the Lumbee are recognized by the state of North Carolina, but they're not recognized by the United States. Uh, so talk a little bit about who gets identified um, why? Sure. Uh, among the Cherokee, there are uh, three different Cherokee groups that are recognized by the federal government of uh, the United States. I might begin by saying that the Cherokee, as well as a lot of other tribal people, um, actually had nation-to-nation um, conferences treaties, um, agreements, negotiations. And so uh, there's a long history of Indian people and Cherokee people in particular um, having uh, national, nation-to-nation -nation, uh, conversation with uh, the US, US government. Um, 
the nations are also recognized uh, in the Constitution um, as uh, as being a distinct as being distinct people. So presently, there are three groups of Cherokee. There's uh, the largest group of Cherokee that is the uh, the nation to which I belong, and uh, these are the people who were sent west on the Trail of Tears. Um, our capital is in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And um, there's a second group that uh, lives uh, near us here in Tennessee and Western North Carolina, where, where you are. Uh, of course, that's the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And um, this consists of some people who never did go west, other people who perhaps in one way or another made their way back to the reservation. These were folks who um, were helped and, and shielded some by, um, by um, in particular, there was a, a man named Will Thomas who, uh, who had been adopted into the Cherokee tribe. Um, he later became a politician and uh, a soldier and, and he became a spokesman for the Eastern Band and also served as, as their chief. So there's a, an Eastern Band and there's also a, a band called the Katua. Uh, who are also in Oklahoma. And uh, this would be a group of folks who, um, who kind of see themselves, I think, as, as more close to the old ways of, uh, of the Cherokee. Um, it's probably true that, that um, person for person, uh, they are a little bit less mixed in uh, blood-wise with uh, with uh, white people, but uh, these would be the three groups uh, that are federally recognized. It should also be mentioned that there are groups of uh, folks who are known as the freedmen, and uh, these would be people who uh, at one time would have been slaves uh, among the Cherokee and, and uh, in the Cherokee Nation. And when they, uh, their freedom was established after the end of the Civil War, uh, they became citizens of the Cherokee Nation as well. So um, um, they're Cherokee as well. I'd also like to say just a, a word about the question of who gets to be included as a member of the nation. Um, the, uh, the way the Cherokee Nation uh, works and probably most of the other uh, tribal peoples as well, uh, as far as the Cherokee go, you have to be able to trace your ancestry back to uh, one of several roles, R-O-L-L-S. Um, back when the federal government got involved with um, forcing the Cherokee out of their homes, out of their holdings, and uh, shipping them and driving them uh, across to uh, what was then known as Indian Territory in the West, um, there were um, tribal roles that were established so that they would have some idea of who these people were and how they were related to one another. And so um, when the Cherokee were established in the West, um, there came a time when the white government around them, uh, federal government, um, 
when there was a great desire by uh, various settlers who were around them to figure out ways to take more land away from, from the Cherokee. And uh, Congress decided to uh, pass a series of laws that, uh, that would bring the Cherokees into, um, into society, uh, US society more. There was an act passed that was called the Dawes Act um and and what this uh, act did was uh, instead of living on communal or tribal land it divided up all the tribal land and uh, it provided each person with 160 acres of land and it was assumed then that um, that the Cherokee would uh, well I think one assumption was that they they would, make their way into a capitalistic uh, American society. Um, of course, the other aspect of it that wasn't spoken so much, but that happened among all native peoples practically was that um, a lot of land began to transfer out of Cherokee hands and into the hands of uh, greedy and rapacious people who, who lived around them. Um, there were uh, laws that were passed where children weren't allowed to uh, to have Cherokee guardians. Instead, they had to have uh, white guardians. Women who were single weren't uh, weren't expected to be able to take care of their own affairs either, and so they too uh, received guardians. And oftentimes, these uh, these guardians ended up with with the land, or the land was sold off for for a pittance. But um, the way you get to be a member is uh, is by blood ties uh, to uh, people who were on these original roles. And so uh, the Dawes role for the Cherokee, uh, three of my grandparents are members of the, of the tribe. And there's still, um, there are old interviews that, um, that my relatives had with the Dawes Commission and, and uh, they established who was in the family and, and how people were related and then published these uh, lists with a determination at that time of um, blood quantum and, uh, and citizenship. So uh, the sovereign nations of, uh, of Native American people are allowed to decide who's, who's, a, who's a citizen and, and who's not. That's, a, that's part of, a nation, of national sovereignty. Um, so and, and that may differ a little bit from tribe to tribe. So there's a little bit different uh, pattern for Eastern Cherokees, for instance, and, and Western Cherokee, but I'm a, I'm a citizen of the Cherokee nation in, in the West. Okay. Well, like I say, you, you and your family uh, were uh, missionaries uh, to the Maasai uh, in Africa. So tell us about that experience, uh, and then especially how that experience as a ministry to a tribal culture uh, is akin to your own experience uh, within the tribal culture of Native peoples, First First Nation peoples. Certainly, yeah. This is something that um that it was such a gift to uh, my family and to me, and it's um, it's also a gift that that I'm continuing to process and, and continuing to, um, uh, to learn about, 
So from 1987 to 1995, our family served as missionaries with a group called Christian Missionary Fellowship. It's a, an organization that's associated with our churches and the Christian churches, Churches of Christ. And um, we moved to a very rural area in southern Kenya. We lived on the Kenya-Tanzania border. And we lived in the midst of, uh, of a people called the Maasai people. Um, there are about maybe half a million Maasai people in Kenya, probably another half million or a little more in, uh, in Tanzania. And um, uh, the Maasai are a wonderful uh, people. They, uh, at the time, they were still living a, a pretty traditional life. They're pastorless. Um, they live tending their cattle and uh, their goats and sheep um, out in the, the large savanna area, the big game country down, down uh, where we lived in that southern part of, of Kenya. They're also a warrior people. And um, it, uh, it just so happened that like so many people that um, when they began to interact with um, colonial government, the British government at the time was uh, with the colonial uh, powers that, that came from outside to, uh, to Kenya, um, the colonists brought with them things that I'm sure they couldn't even know that they were bringing. Things like uh, render pests that wiped out a lot of the cattle and uh, diseases like smallpox that, uh, that really severely weakened tribal people like, like the Maasai. And um, the uh, Maasai resisted uh, the forces of uh, modernization for a long period of time. For a long time, they were known as the, the Ilmayu, which, which means uh, the people who don't want. We, we don't want what you're selling. We don't want what you're giving. We don't even want contact with you. We'd, we'd rather you just stay away from us and leave us alone. And so they reached sort of an uneasy detente with uh, the colonial government and were allowed to live out in a, in a reserve uh, with the understanding that uh, they had to give up a big piece of their land. Sounds familiar. And, uh, and they were uh, allowed to, uh, to be out in, in, in this space. And so pretty much up until the, oh, I don't know, probably the, the um, 60s, maybe early 70s, um, there, uh, there wasn't just a tremendous amount. Let me just say that they were kind of held in a different category than most, most other tribal people. Um, there's still some very remote areas of Kenya and there's some areas that are lightly touched by, uh, by the forces of Westernization. But, um, Maasai kids began to go to school and to be put in school and, and, um, a few folks became Christians, mostly people who were living close to town. But it was the belief of the people that uh, that I worked with that a uh, credible and a contextualized uh, sharing of the gospel of Jesus um, would result in um, Maasai coming to know the person of Jesus. I worked with a, a group that um, cared a lot about 
contextualization, very careful contextualization of the gospel. Um, I worked with a group that cared a lot that their people went as, uh, as learners, as uh, humble guests who were uh, invited and welcomed into an area, as people who, um, who uh, asked if they would, would be uh, welcome to share the gospel in various areas and villages. And so uh, one of the things that, that uh, we came to believe in was that uh, language learning was incredibly important. And so when we first showed up in the country, we'd taken a couple of language learning courses prior to our arrival in Kenya, but there was no school where you could learn Maasai. And the best way to learn it is to learn it out in the village. And so our family, which consisted of my wife, Marcia, and uh, two of our very young kids, age three and one, we immediately moved out into a pretty remote area. We were about four hours off the nearest paved road and, and um, the nearest electricity. Um, service station was about four hours away where you could buy fuel. And... Um, and the post office was about four hours away. Hard, that's hard driving with a four wheel drive uh, vehicle. And uh, we moved into this, uh, this little village, a little area surrounded by villages. And we began to learn uh, the Maasai language. And uh, it took about a year for me to become pretty comfortable with uh, saying pretty much whatever I needed to say or wanted to say. And we were also taught that um, we didn't, we weren't encouraged to uh, teach or to um, or to really speak from any kind of authority without spending an entire first year learning and listening to these people. And so I learned their um, the ways, many of the ways of their culture, and it was a it put me in a context of being a learner, a lifelong learner of their culture and their ways. And, and we had deep respect for, for them as people. We, um, we loved them and they came to love us and uh, we became good neighbors with these folks. And so after about a year, um, upon invitation, I would, would go to the different villages and begin to teach. And, um, and we began to see Christians that uh, folks wanted to follow Christ and uh, they were baptized and, and were formed into small family circles and gatherings. Little churches began to develop. We also worked on uh, leadership training and, and uh, teaching folks to read the Bible in their own language. We worked with uh, literacy and uh, materials production. We, uh, all of us worked in development. And so all my teammates were starting uh, health clinics in their area. We were working with uh, animal care, agriculture. Uh, I managed a beekeeping clinic uh, or a beekeeping project while I was uh, while I was there in Kenya, and um, we were involved in things like uh, drought relief when food got scarce. And so um, we really gave our hearts to these folks, and we were so blessed to see a church movement that that uh, that started. I'm also really proud to say that that we tried to uh, stay just long enough to, to raise up leaders and to provide um, 
some materials, including Bibles, and uh, and then we got out of the way and uh, allowed these Maasai leaders to uh, chart their own path. And today there's a vibrant church down in that southern part of Kenya, northern part of Tanzania. Maasai are sending out their, their own people to uh, share the gospel with, with others. They're also uh, leading a whole network of clinics down in that southern part of Kenya. And uh, I go back every few years to do some teaching and just to see my old neighbors. But uh, but it was such a great experience. And, and uh, I really think we got to see and experience a bit of, of old Africa as it is passing, living with these uh, very traditional people. And I was able to go really deep uh, in a language and to, to learn a lot about their culture. And, um, and so now all these years later, I've been um, immersing myself in the Cherokee language and um, the Cherokee people uh, have been people that have been affected by Westerners since they first came into contact with them in the uh, early 1700s. And, you know, they, they changed a lot quicker and uh, had to adapt to living with American and U.S. neighbors um, as uh, as sometimes opponents and sometimes in uh, grudging relationships and sometimes in friendships. Um, but um, but I'm, I feel blessed to have been a part of, uh, of a culture where I have a home always among the Maasai, where I'm still in contact with people. And, and I've learned that, uh, that you can have more than one home. And I think that, that you can live in more than one culture. And so, in some ways, I, I do live in, in a Maasai culture. Uh, I've got a Maasai name. I've got a Maasai clan. I've got a Maasai age group. I've got dear Maasai family. And, um, and I'm blessed to live in a, in a Cherokee, uh, Cherokee setting and, and in, uh, in a setting in which uh, I, I grew up in, in white settings in the United States as well. And I'm I'm a citizen of the United States. So uh, instead of feeling fractured and and uh, and scattered, uh, I think that those experiences have have really enriched my life and certainly the lives of uh, of my kids and um, and my my wife and all of my teammates. So it was um, all in all, it was just a fantastic set of experiences. Well, the Cherokee have clans, right? And are, are they do. Which one of those? I'm actually not. And the reason that I'm not is because uh, Cherokee are matriarchal people and uh, clan membership passes through um, the mother. And so um, my mother's mother was, uh, was a white woman. And so that that clan membership was was broken at that time. So uh, so yeah, I'm not I don't have a clan. Okay. Well, recently you have become involved in the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. And as you told me the name change, you can go into that a little bit, but tell us about that work and about your work with it. Absolutely. Yeah, what a great group this is. Uh, Nate's North American Institute for 
Indigenous Theological Studies was its first name. And now it's simply known as NATES, a learning community. And uh, this began with um, a number of folks who got really interested, a number of Native people, Indigenous people, mostly um, Indigenous folks from Canada and from the United States. Uh, these are people who, many of them grew up on reservation settings. Many of them grew up in, um, in certainly in tribal settings. But uh, they also grew up in churches that were heavily colonized. Uh, their patterns of, of worship and theology were heavily dominated by um, Western, or European, or American uh, models of church and worship and theology. And so uh, a number of folks began to question that. And if I could describe Nates, I would say that it's a, it's a group of people in this learning community who, who are walking the way of Jesus, who love Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Gospels, the historical Jesus, and, uh, and who are not so enamored with the colonial patterns of, of the Western church and the American gospel. So they're saying yes to Jesus and um, either hold on a minute um, or wait a minute. We're not so sure that, that, that we need to um, always follow in the patterns of the Western church when it comes to the way that we live our life out in the church. Um, a couple of names of folks who were founders. Uh, Terry LeBlanc is a First Nations guy from... Uh, from Canada, who was one of the founding members and has been one of the leaders even to today. Richard Twiss was my first introduction to uh, Nates. Richard Twiss, I used one of uh, his books called One Tribe, Many Nations. He's a Lakota man. And uh, he also uh, has another book out called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. And uh, both of these men helped to form uh, Nates with the uh, assistance and leadership of, of lots of other Native people. And basically, it's a um, two-pronged ministry. Uh, it is a ministry that uh, one side of the ministry works uh, in community development in Indigenous communities. And uh, the other side of the, the, uh, the ministry is um, provides graduate education, uh, ATS accredited graduate education to uh, indigenous people and their allies uh, within the states, within North America and around the world. Now it's important to say that uh, they quit using the North American uh, name because when they started launching classes, most of them online, very quickly um, there were some folks who were indigenous people in Australia and uh, New Zealand and the Philippines and South America and Central America who, uh, who recognized the goodness of, of a, a group of people or perhaps a seminary that was founded by indigenous people who believe strongly in the contextualized gospel 
for indigenous people and run by indigenous people. Um, and so they began to say, hey, we'd, we'd love to be a part of this as well. And so they realized very early that they, they'd already outgrown their name and uh, they dropped the North American part of it. And now they've got, uh, they've got branches in uh, several parts of the world and, um, and they've got a, a growing um, ministry to indigenous people and indigenous allies. So there are non-native people who, um, who are really trying to figure out uh, how can we decolonize the gospel and uh, how can we lean into our uh, indigenous ways of wisdom that uh, are contextualized within uh, our church and, and seminary setting? What specifically so, are you doing? Uh, yeah. So I am right now uh, coming to know uh, the, the people of Nate's. I've, uh, I've spent some time with the board uh, this summer. I went to uh, their meeting in Winnipeg, Canada. It's important to say that they don't have a brick and mortar uh, headquarters. They've decided to pour their resources instead into people around the world. And so there is a, uh, a yearly symposium and a couple of their classes are shoehorned around this symposium where folks can get together and, and, uh, and learn from one another and celebrate together and, and all that's great. The board can get together and meet. And so I was asked by uh, the director of graduate studies, uh, a Choctaw man named Chris Haklatubi, um, to come to, uh, to the meeting in Canada and to meet their board and talk about the possibility of maybe doing some teaching. In uh, further studies, um, we are, they're in the process of revamping their DMIN program. And so I've been asked to be a part of, of, um, of, of those discussions and, uh, and then uh, possibly uh, teaching with Nate's a couple of classes. And there's also a need for someone who can train and mentor ministry students. Uh, I teach at a, a seminary here in East Tennessee called Emmanuel Christian Seminary. And uh, most of the work that I do is with ministry students. And I'm, I mentor a lot of ministry students, both in the church setting that I'm in and in the seminary setting. And so this seems like a, a really wonderful and, and natural outgrowth that, um, that I'm happy to participate in. Well, you said you went to the symposium and this year was on ethnomusicology. Yeah, it was great. There was, uh, and I'll say ethnomusicology within indigenous settings around the world. So not only was there, oh, just tremendous um, drumming and, and singing, there's a, a lively group of people who are writing um, writing songs from the indigenous community that uh, are sung by groups and, uh, and led by people around drum circles. Um, but we also, we, uh, we had courses and, uh, and classes on things like uh, the way that the Cherokee hymnody uh, developed and the way that uh, Cherokees, even early on, as late as the 17, late 1700s, uh, early 1800s began to contextualize uh, their own music. Sometimes 
they they were encouraged to sing uh, Western tunes, but but the words that they used were were words that emphasized uh, Cherokee themes and uh, spoke to Cherokee people. And and some of these uh, songs were the songs that that carried many of these folks across many, many lonely and hard miles as they walked the Trail of Tears to, uh, to their new home in Indian Territory in the West. So uh, we also had uh, great presentations on uh, the music of various indigenous people. There was a, a sister from uh, Taiwan who came from an indigenous uh, tribal group in, in Taiwan. She was a Presbyterian woman who uh, who brought both the goodness of her culture and also questions about uh, about where things are, are moving within uh, the church in Taiwan. We had a wonderful choir of uh, Maori uh, believers from New Zealand, and uh, it was such great music, and uh, we we enjoyed those guys uh, a lot. So it was it was really fun to uh, to hear the music of of different people, and to to share in the goodness of of talking about um, one person I'll mention in particular um, was a, a young man named uh, Johnny Oso. He's a uh, a Colombian who lives in the Amazon jungle, and um, he's been talking a lot about the contextualization of of worship, and. Um, He's using a term uh, called uh, ethnodoxology. And uh, I find that to be a a wonderfully illustrative word. Uh, He's trying to figure out ways that indigenous people from the the hearts of the people can can raise up their doxology to to God and can shout out uh, the beauty of their their language and culture in, uh, in ways that that honor God and uh, get right at the heart of people uh, who are living and who are living in that in those cultures. So it was uh, it was really a tremendous gathering. It was also just good to uh, to be with Native brothers and sisters. Um, for me, it was really exciting because I had two Cherokee brothers uh, whom I I have never met uh, in person, but um, one of them is actually related to me. Um, he goes way back in the Ross family. He's a descendant of uh, John Ross, who was chief of the Cherokee Nation for 40 years during the removal. And, um, and uh, I'm a, a descendant of Andrew Ross, who is John Ross's brother. Um, and so my cousin is a uh, United Methodist pastor at a native church uh, with the Methodist Church in Portland, Oregon. And so he oversees a lot of good work among Native people in in the uh, in the Northwest, all the way up to uh, Alaska. And uh, he came down for this gathering as well, and we were able to meet for the first time face to face. It was really a blessing. And um, and so lots of lots of Native folks uh, coming together, uh, talking and laughing and eating and singing and praying. Um, it was. Um, it was a blessed event that reminded me of some of the, the gatherings that we uh, read about on the pages of, uh, of Revelation of John. So pretty exciting stuff. 
Well, one of the things that you personally have been working on uh, just in your own life uh, has been connected with uh, uh, returning Native remains. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I'm reading a really fascinating book that was uh, written by a, um, a historian from Western Carolina. And um, it has to do with the way that, um, that the Southern cultures have, um, Southern cultures, people, folks from the South have dealt with, with um, Cherokee people who are in their midst and Cherokee people who have passed beyond their sight. And so it takes a historical look at the way that, that uh, Southerners have memorialized um, Cherokee people. And, um, and it's, a, it's a fascinating approach, but it, it gets at the way that uh, for some reason, and I, I don't understand all the reasons uh, why this has happened, but uh, one of the things that that um, white historians and um, anthropologists um, and maybe just uh, anybody who's interested in history and anybody that's interested in native people who who are you know white folks living in in cultures, but there's there seems to be a deep love for digging up things that are native. Uh, I've talked to hundreds of people who talk about walking fields after a rain and finding uh, points and finding artifacts. Um, I've talked to people who, um, who went in when lakes have gone down searching for um, native artifacts. And um, sadly, that there's also been a lot of folks who uh, who have taken native remains that come from graves, and uh, or they come from mounds, and uh, this has been something that uh, occasionally, I guess, it's been done when uh, public works projects have uh, uncovered graves of uh, of our ancestors. Uh, I know that uh, groups like TVA, uh, when they were putting in large reservoirs, sometimes they flooded areas where there were there were really big graves and uh, and mounds that were dug up. Um, most of the time, these things have gone to uh, universities and to various historical institutions, and um, and also to uh, museums, of course. But um, but they've also just been stuck in boxes, you know, in people's garages, and and they've um, unfortunately, tragically, uh, been sold in auctions, and they're advertised and and uh, shipped around, and it's I find it a really weird thing, uh, to be honest, and I don't understand everything that's behind it, um, but. Um, I'm happy to say that uh, that there's been a little bit of, of movement within 
uh, American culture. There was a law that was passed by Congress called NAGPRA, which deals with uh, native remains and native graves. It actually makes it a federal crime to, uh, to dig these up, to, to retain them, to keep them, to sell them. But, uh, but it's oftentimes widely ignored. Anyway, fast forward. So I'm a, I'm a pastor and have been for a long time. And uh, one of my friends told me recently that, uh, that within his family, back in the 1960s, uh, his dad was a member of a, uh, an archaeological club in this area. And they dug native remains and native village sites along the creeks and the rivers in this area. And uh, his father retained uh, a number of sets of remains. And um, before his dad died several years ago, he asked the son to, uh, to figure out a way to get these things back to the people where they belong and into the ground where they belong. And I didn't know how to do that. And so um, he asked if I would help him. And so I've been helping him to do that. I uh, contacted the uh, historic preservation officer for the Cherokee Nation West put me in touch with the historic preservation officer from uh, Cherokee, North Carolina, the Eastern Band of Cherokee. And uh, after a lot of uh, negotiation, um, I took possession of these remains and all of the associated remains, uh, some tools, some jewelry, some uh, points for uh, spears and arrows, and uh, all of these things uh, the Cherokee Nation sent uh, representatives to my home a couple weeks ago, and they uh, they took all of the these remains back to be examined uh, by an archaeologist from the tribe, and then eventually they are going to be buried, reburied, and the tribe will take them back to uh, uh, private and hidden locations very near to the place where they. Uh, they were once interred, and uh, they'll try to get them as close to home as they possibly can, and uh, and to rebury those along with all those um, associated objects. So I'm I'm really proud and happy to have been a part in helping to uh, to get some of these remains back to where they belong. I've also been shocked and staggered by the number of remains that are out there. I was told by one of the historic preservation officers that TVA is in the process of returning 4,800 sets of remains to, uh, to various uh, tribes. Um, my friend from Oklahoma told me that last year, 15,000 sets of remains were, uh, were in the process of being returned and repatriated and reburied. Uh, that were at the University of Alabama and in all of the systems of museums and colleges and all the various places where they had lent those things out. Imagine that, 15,000 sets of remains. And if you just do the numbers and if you just extrapolate that out to all the universities that, that, are, that are out, you know, in places where Native people used to live, I, I can't even begin to imagine the number of of native graves that have been desecrated and and many of these things that have been kept and i you know i just wonder would people do that you know to their own ancestors their own white ancestors their german ancestors you know their british ancestors um would 
would they drag those bones of their neighbors ancestors out and and put them in their garage and and so i'm glad it's been taken a little more seriously i'm really happy to have been just a very small part of trying to respectfully return these uh remains where they they need to be and uh i uh smudged some smoke over them and and i prayed some prayers over them and uh and i spoke words of blessing as uh as they made their way to uh to where they need to be was well, a final question. Um, how how would you um, guide uh, folks like me, white person, uh, white Christian, yeah. uh, relating to indigenous cultures? A couple things I'd say. Um, first of all, you can absolutely be an ally, and um, this is um, these are these are people. We are people who need who need and covet the friendship and of, of good allies. And so uh, we need people who um, who care about us, not as historical relics. One of the things that this book I've been reading uh, talks about is that historically Southerners have uh, tended to see Native people as uh, as people who are gone, people who in the past lived here, but they've departed. They're they're away from us. We don't have to think about them really anymore in any kind of terms that it's going to upset our life with regards to our property, with regards to uh, having to live around folks, and uh, and so now we have the luxury of of uh, commemorating them and maybe even feel a little bit sorry for them and. Uh, Talking about what happened is a, a bad deal and a tragedy, but you know, well, let's move on with our lives. Well, the fact is that Native people aren't gone, and uh, and they're still among us, and uh, and so we're we're still here as Native people of almost every tribe say. And so I would say that figure out ways that you can be a friend and an ally, and uh, one of the ways you can do that is by actually. Uh, reading and and coming to know some of the the true history rather than than just some of the mythology that uh, is so prevalent in in our culture and uh, and I would say that uh, for instance the way that these bones were repatriated they came through a non Cherokee friend who uh, who's a historian who is working hard in the area where he lives in the United States. To, uh, to be an ally to the native community around him. And, uh, and he reached out to me to, uh, to get this project done, this good work done in, uh, in our area. And, uh, and so there, there are ways to, to become involved in, in that way. Um, and learning about uh, issues that, that come before um, the courts, even today, it still happens. We just had a Supreme Court case last a uh, couple weeks ago that had to do with foster children and um, whether Indian people should have um, preference when Indian foster children, Native foster children, Indigenous foster children are uh, are placed in in homes. Um, there's a, uh, a 
policy right now that was established by Congress that says yes, uh, that should happen. It's called the it's called the ICWA law, and um, there were powerful interests who were trying to tear that out of uh, of the practice of the United States. And the Supreme Court stood up for it and said, "No, that's not right. We're we absolutely are going to keep giving Indian people preference. That's part of that's part of um, of it's a little bit of reparations for the ways that we've tried to to uh, to exterminate." these people through the years but um, but things like that really require allies uh, people who who can come around and say with us that uh, no that that's not right there was another supreme court case a couple of years ago that uh, determined that all those lands out in oklahoma most of of the land has gone out of uh, native american hands and you know, I would say that it's it's been taken, it's been stolen, and um, and yet um, the Supreme Court ruled that those old reservations have never been decommissioned, they've never been decertified, and so it has a tremendous bearing for uh, legal um, justification of what happens on those lands. It, uh, it has potential for gaming right uh, kinds of decisions and, and also maybe even environmental law for, uh, for Oklahoma. And uh, so you can imagine that, that a lot of folks in Oklahoma um, are, are really starting to get a little bit nervous about what they thought was uh, land that was securely in, in, under their control. And they're discovering that... Uh, Indian people haven't gone away. They're, we're, we're still here. And so that requires uh, some, some allegiances. And, and I think just as uh, followers of Jesus, um, we always need uh, brothers and sisters and, uh, and folks who, uh, who can, can stand, stand with us and uh, encourage us to be the best that we can be. I'm going to be speaking uh, for a group of uh, Presbyterians in August who are uh, have a retreat center over west of Knoxville that uh, that's on uh, old Cherokee land and even has some Cherokee graves uh, on the very site of the retreat center. And uh, we're talking about ways that they can they can be good allies and good neighbors uh, even still. So uh, those are those are a few of my thoughts. All right. Well, you've had a, a long and wonderful, amazing ministry, uh, and I'm grateful, been blessed by uh, watching all that you have done, learning all that you have done. And I thank you for providing your voice today, uh, for helping giving us deeper insights. Thank you so much, David. It's such a blessing to be with you, and I appreciate and love you so much, and uh, I look forward to being together again. All right. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website 
at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.